creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And sorry for our brief absence. Um, we, were in, <laughs> we were insanely busy um, doing the things that we do. Yep. Important things. Yep. Um, Wearing a cowl at night with a cape. <laughs> sure. <Yes. Yeah. laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, we were also, um, I've been helping out with the upcoming Christians for Biblical Equality conference. Uh, it's going to be in Orlando, Florida. Yep. We've been looking forward to that quite a bit. So. Yeah, and a lot of preparation going into this one. Yeah, and then if any of you guys want to meet us, um, we'd love to, I don't know, talk to you about whatever. <laughs> yeah, just say hello and you can buy us a bottle of wine or a beer for me. I'd appreciate it, that. It's always, it's always a beer with you. It's always a beer, it? yes. Yes. Hmm. But yes, I would not be opposed to a bottle of wine. And don't listen to any horrible, horrible lies that Mike Bird may say about me at the conference. Just might. Just maybe. Yeah. He's going to be coming in remotely, but just don't listen to any of the lies. The lies? The slander, the fake news from Mike Bird? Yes. Okay. Definitely. No. (laughs) Okay, so today um, we're going to be covering a couple things. Um, So first, we will be trying a lovely wine this time. Any beers, um, thankfully for me. Mm. Um, and we're also gonna let you know what we've been reading lately. I think we haven't done a book corner and a beer slash wine tasting lately, so yeah. why not? Yeah. Um, and then we're also gonna go through some of the relevant points of Luke Acts, especially in relation to women and Pentecost. Yes. So let's do the vino and the book corner at the same time. No, not the same time. Oh, but that makes it more entertaining. Yeah. yeah. All right, so Vino first. Go ahead, since you actually like wine. Okay. Yes, I actually like wine. This is a wonderful specimen. We found it in a box at the bottom of the shelf at Trader Joe's. No, but it's not... um, We we don't have money. We don't have tons of money, so we, we... we don't get the box stuff, but... But we get the low-end bottled stuff, so... Yeah, so nothing fancy. Let's see. I like it. It's kind of, um, I think, a little bit more crisp and... That's kind of fruity notes. Is it red or white? Red wine. Red wine, okay. Yeah, I think it's... How much did we pay for it? <laughs> Five bucks. Yeah, it's like, it's like a Trader Joe's It's thing. like... A, I should know this. I worked at BevMo for like a year. I should know wine better. Yeah, it tastes like a red wine. Yeah, nothing fancy, but... It tastes, hey, at least I'm not suffering this time I around. I mean, this is why we, used, we started off as Baptists. We prefer grape juice anyway. <laughs> All right, so book corner. Uh, who wants to go first? You can go first. Yeah. All right. Uh, aside from reading a million Galatians commentaries for my class, uh, I picked up this small little book. It's called uh, Key United Methodist Beliefs by William Abraham and David Watson. It's a nice little 160-page uh, just kind of introduction to Methodist theology, specifically on just the general topics of sin, salvation, and Christian perfectionism. And they have this great little section on uh, John Wesley's Covenant Prayer. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but the thing that stuck out to me was Wesley said, it's the final pericope, it's, uh, And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on heaven, let it be ratified in heaven, or on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I just like the terseness of it. Thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. I almost picture uh, Picard, make it so. and Of course. You, yep. And you just kind of move on, and that's See, I'm it. winning him over to Star Trek, slowly well, I, but surely. I mean, you can't go wrong with Picard. But anyway, so I, I dug I dug that a lot, and it's been a great little book. And someone who's not raised in Methodism... Or Star uh, Trek. Or, well, I was raised in Star Trek, actually. My dad's a huge Trekkie. Uh, but as someone who wasn't raised in Methodism, it's a nice just kind of primer for the whole, uh, the whole of Methodist and Wesleyan theology, which I find myself being strangely warmed and drawn to. Excellent. What are you reading, or what have you been reading? I have been reading Francis Watson's Agape, Eros, and Gender. It's towards a Pauline sexual ethic. Ooh, sweet. Yeah, so I like it. Um, he uses agape um, love as basically the primary category for understanding sexuality and gender. Hmm. Um, agape is understood in the context of a divine human love that includes sexual relationships within marriage, but does not make it the end all 
or supreme expression of God's love. And I think hmm. a tendency in the church today is to try to elevate, in the broader society, it's elevating sex, and in the church it's elevating marriage to this um, supreme expression of everything. Yeah, where, both are idolatrized almost. I would say so too, and it it's gotten to the, the point where we've noticed that a lot of our um, very qualified, talented friends um, can't find work within churches um, because they're not married. Yep. And that just, I think, in the end, it's what you do. It's not just what you hold in private um, mm-hmm. that matters. And yeah. when people that are single um, are not finding work within the church that are otherwise qualified, you know, you gotta you gotta wonder that maybe they do prioritize um, and elevate marriage beyond what's healthy. Well, you have to wonder too if Paul would be able to get a job at some of these churches or, or Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jinx, you have to take another step. Take another step. All right, you got Jinx. Oh, like, like I had to force your arm mm. there. I know. Yeah. So you it's like nice the book? Not having to twist my hand. <laughs> so you like the book? Yeah, I love it. Um, and he goes through First Corinthians eleven, Romans seven, and Ephesians five. Um fun texts. Yeah, he actually also interacts with uh, authors such as Freud. Um, I've been oh, gosh. snickering every now and then. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I keep making like horrible jokes to Nick about how um, I'm like, I don't have penis envy, I swear. Oh, gosh, thank you for that. Yep, lovely, right? Yeah, thank you, Freud. Yes, so apparently if I have a male child, I will feel strangely fulfilled for the um, part that I don't have that I really secretly want in this bizarre way. Yay! And you're my dad, somehow. What? Wait, what? That, yeah. Well, I'm resisting jokes right now because I'm sure my mother will listen to this. He really is resisting, too. Yes, like, I am. Like, if you can't see it, but I'm actually gripping my palm with the other hand with fingernails dug in. I'm pretty sure. I can see you. They can't. Yes. Uh, yes. Anyway, moving on from daddy issues. Uh, thank you very much. I don't have daddy issues. No, you don't, but Freud did. True. Uh, so what? So that's Vino Corner. That is uh, that's Book Corner. What, Wait, so what's what, next? what particular wine was that? It's a Cabernet. That's what it tasted like. Uh, Allison, you should grab it from the fridge. We live in one of those nice little studios where Allison is actually going to the fridge right now. Uh, I'm grabbing it. Nice little studios where you can sneeze and you're in another room. It is a Velvet Moon. Oh, that's right. A Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, California, 2005. Um, 2015. Yeah, 15. If it was 2005, it'd be a lot better. Um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. It contains sulfites, which all wines do, even if wines say they don't contain sulfites. That's something you learn at Bethmo. All wine has sulfites, no matter if what they say or do. Yeah, so it It's a beautiful good. golden hue, has been a symbol of both endings and beginnings for winemakers each harvest. Like my love. All right, let's do this. <laughs> what is next on the docket? Alrighty. So, now to launch into our discussion on Luke Axe. All right. And... Something that Nick and I have been talking about for quite a bit, and maybe you've noticed a running theme um, between us for this, it's kind of this thing where we're noticing that people are seeking propositional truths um, where maybe they shouldn't be. Um, And especially this is the case when it comes to contemplating narratives um, Mm. and their implications. Yeah. So, I mean, just imagine how this could play out if, like, you were watching... A movie and you're thinking about maybe maybe it's schindler's list i don't know okay um but someone point picks out like a little snippet of it and makes that one snippet the entire thing ignoring everything that came before came after um what this one moment symbolized in the context of everything else mm-hmm. um it'd be a little awkward i think and especially if they tried to take a more of a reductionistic understanding oh for example okay so let's play this out there's a yeah. scene in in uh schindler's list where ralph Fiennes plays a nazi general uh, over a concentration camp and he gets up naked from a bed and just t- picks up a rifle and goes around shooting people uh just jews in the concentration camp just no words just pow pow and shooting people and if you were just to take that snippet and reduce it you'd basically you could say oh look at white men are so violent Look at white, you know, Aryan men are so violent. Yeah, and you're importing your own context instead of... So you are... There's a narrative, in a sense, that you're importing from or drawing from. It's just not that film. Yeah, you wouldn't know he's a Nazi. You wouldn't know anything about this. All you'd basically say, look, white men are violent. And you get this sort of reductionistic, kind of idiosyncratic, frankly, narcissistic, because you don't consider the context in which anything was written or conducted. And so that's kind of what we're pointing at, too. A lot of Christians take that snippet and go, okay, uh, therefore X, Y, and Z. And we're kind of like, no, there's 150 150 minutes before this event. Those things matter. 
and this event does not occur in isolation. So essentially what we're saying is nothing uh, in scripture occurs tabula rasa. It always assumes something happening. Essentially what we're saying is everything requires interpretation. Yeah, everything, and especially I think people are uncomfortable with narratives because mm -hmm. it's they aren't as easily reduced as well, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, sometimes people are able to do that. We saw that a bit with the First Timothy passage yeah. um, where you have these like two lines that people are like, oh, yes, so women are A, not allowed to do this and allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. Like, here's an example maybe from um, what we'll be discussing. Um so you might take the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people, men and women at Pentecost, and conclude, therefore, women at that one point in time were allowed to speak in tongues and prophesy. No challenge to how maybe we live our lives today. Maybe no connection to narrative whole. We've just concluded, ah, yes, this is the this is lens we're approaching it from, and we're going to make sure to apply it extremely narr narrowly. Yeah. And so... For instance, I think a lot of us, um, I mean, not all of us, we're not part of the same tradition per se, but some of us might bring up, oh, well, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to men and women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hence, what's the problem with preaching, women preaching yeah. in church? Yeah. People that take a, maybe a more narrow understanding, um, and again, we're not saying everyone, um, just there, there is this tendency where yeah. maybe that's not going to be considered the best evidence because it's not propositional. It hasn't told them exactly what they want to hear. And that is, um, women are, I, Paul, or I, Luke, think that women should be permitted to preach in um, X capacity, in Y scenario, and this scenario, and that scenario, um, under these conditions. Like, yeah. 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 It, it's narrative doesn't, is not inherently about categories. And so when you're looking for a proposition, you're looking for basically, I am presupposing a certain outlook that scripture will fulfill based on my reading of one verse. Therefore, At least that's what happens in practice. Yeah. I think, like, my position is um, you're always using a narrative context yeah. or a context, whether it's imported or if it's coming from the world of the text. And so a good question to ask yourself and others when dialoguing is, what do I have to assume about what you believe in order to agree with you? Yeah, and ask it about yourself too. Yep, exactly. Especially, what am I assume, What am I bringing to this text? I mean, that's the one thing Rudolf Bultmann taught that I love is you're not a tabula rasa when you read the Bible. Basically, to paraphrase Rudolf Bultmann, you come with a certain cultural context, and if your context says women cannot function in any sort of way, then you will automatically read scripture with that sort of lens. Therefore, pushing out any sort of narrative function wouldn't fulfill in say Luke Acts. Yeah, and it also means like not just being like, well, the Holy Spirit um, got poured out on all people, therefore, what's your problem? Yeah, the reverse of that is also true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, egalitarians can be jerks too. Like, yeah, not all egalitarians, but yeah, some ega yeah, but some egalitarians, yeah. So you know, let's just. I mean, I think if we all just took a moment, conscious of what we're bringing to the text, um, and try to read critically and read ourselves critically, I think. That's a good step. And, al and also respecting the fears that other people bring, too. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, there's there's fears that people have. We don't want to turn uh, men and women into androgynous beings that lack any sort of gifting or some sort of thing like that. So I think that's something that's worth, you know, respecting in terms of a question or an underlying substructure or fear. But, yeah, just respecting another person where they're coming from and being willing to hear them out versus, I don't know, throwing them into Gehenna or something like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe the person that you're talking to... Um has some legitimate points as to why they don't find um, certain things that you bring up, like the spirit being poured out on all people as um, sufficient for them to believe women should be allowed to do certain things. Like, and everyone's going to be different. Um, find out their reasons and um, think critically about yourself. Ask other egalitarians and non-egalitarians what they think. And yeah, yeah just be open. All right. have that. Okay. Right. So what's, where are we starting? Yeah. So what Nick and I are going to do is we, we found this, Luke and Acts are chocked full of different things that are re relevant to the gender debate. Mm -hmm. And again, when we say gender debate, it does mean that we are importing a question over to the text that it's not directly answering. Yeah. So that is what we are doing. Um, we need to be overt about that. Yes. Um, people that are complementarians, egalitarians, we need to recognize that. Um, so what we're going to do, though, is go through a couple of points that we think you would 
find helpful in your discussions with others. And yep. um, maybe after we look at some of these individual occasions, we'll consider it in light of the larger scope of Luke Acts and yeah, call it a day. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I'll be starting with the, uh, the famous Magnificat in Luke 1, uh, Mary's Magnificat, but I'm actually going to start a little earlier. Um, and so you, when you have, uh, you have the context being uh, the birth of Jesus being kind of foretold, um, and all these sort of the virgin's name was Mary and, you know, the angel coming to her and all these sorts of things. And Mary says, here I am, the servants of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. And, uh, verse 38 of Luke one. And then you have Mary being visit or Mary visiting, uh, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard, and I'm, I'm actually quoting from verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy spirit, which predates Pentecost not in terms of writing this, but in terms of uh, Luke's, Luke Acts chronology, was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there, that there would be a fulfillment of which was spoken to her by the Lord. So already, even before we get to the Magnificat, you have uh, this a woman being the first woman, it seems even the first person being filled with the Holy Spirit is Elizabeth, a woman. And that's not within Luke's narrative. Uh, that's uh, incredibly powerful. The fact that the, the oppressed or, you know, the downtrodden or the, the, the people with less social standing are given the, one of the greatest gifts that the church has ever been given the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it doesn't solve the debate, but it does categorize, it does help us kind of understand what Luke's trying to do. This is No name is insignificant in Luke Acts, especially. And so uh, then you have Mary's Song of Praise, the famous, and I think I should read it because, you know, it is sacred scripture and we're free to read it. And Mary, or she said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servants. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercies for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And so, I mean, right here you have uh, what Najee Gupta calls uh, uh, the voice of scripture. So this woman is, is not writing scripture, but she is speaking scripture, which I think is directly authoritative. She's speaking with authority about what God has done. Um, and so he has looked with favor upon his servant. Uh, he has done great things and he is holy. So you have a doctrine already of the doctrine of God, the God who does great things and who is holy, who is merciful, who is strong, who has the ability to dethrone people and lift up the oppressed, who has the ability to help and remember. And this is all done in accordance to the promise. And this is similar language that Paul used, the promises of God. And so this, she is not uh, prophesying in a vacuum, she's telling basically the, the reader, he's t she's telling us that God has been at work and is continuing at work and is now at work in her womb. And so this is a very powerful uh, doctrine of, doctrinal statement about God's character and goodness that began way before she was ever born and gives her kind of a preeminence of place in telling the story of God. And, and then you have other aspects of that, but um, you have essentially a, a great doctrinal statement that tells us exactly who God is and who God has always been. God is faithful to his promise. So yeah, that's that's the Magnificat in, in a nutshell. Wow, in a nutshell. In nice. a nutshell. <laughs> and so she, and, and we still call Mary blessed. She, you know, she's the mother of Jesus. She's the mother of, of God. And so we, we yeah, we, we have, Theotokos. yeah, Theotokos. And the big thing, you know, uh, he's helped his servant Israel as he has helped his servant Mary. And so you even have kind of a typology possibly working there, which is very interesting. So that's that's the Magnificat in a nutshell. In a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. If, 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 if it were possible. If it were um, possible. Yeah, so something I wanted to bring up too, um, and again, there's there's tons of these. Um, in, Luke at, or in Luke, there seems to be like this whole thing with pairs. Hmm. So where men and women are paired together um, in various sequences, sometimes... It seems like they're drawing similarities of some sort, um, but it's not necessarily something that's always similar, considered similar to in from a modern perspective. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the one we're gonna I'm look at more. will seem more similar. If you want to know more about how the pairs kind of 
might have more significance. I recommend going to the Double Message Patterns of Gender in Luke Acts uh, by Turid Saim. That's S-E-I-M. She go and look especially on page 14 and 15. Um, but the one I wanted to look at was um, we have Simon um, that comes up first, and this um, is in uh, Luke 2. And he was the one that was um, basically told he wouldn't die until uh, he saw God's salvation. And hmm. um, this is the one that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to. And um, we're not going to focus on him today, um, but we're going to focus on the one his, his counterpart, Anna. So something interesting um, that I've always found kind of a little, like, that that's curious, is you... It seems like we have women that are both there at the beginning, preaching the birth of the Messiah, mm-hmm. and at the end, preaching his resurrection. Hmm. Um, so the resurrection is at Luke uh, 24, 9 through 11. Anna um, can be found Luke 2, 36 through 38. Um, now, she was a, a widow She for many years. Um, she perhaps had a special position within the temple and should go there and pray Hmm. routinely. What makes this interesting from maybe our vantage point is her manner of preaching the good news of basically that the Messiah has arrived is a public thing and it is at the temple. Hmm. Um, Now, I think maybe some of the issue comes up from our perspective in that we want to say women can't preach in our churches. Well, I don't want to say that, but yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. We, again, it, it's that kind of box mentality of, well, maybe Anna, um, even though she was preaching publicly in the context of the temple, maybe it's because um, it's the early times and we don't have full-fledged Christians. So she's a preaching to non-Christians somehow. Or maybe God wasn't faithful, wanted, uh, maybe men weren't being faithful. And so he had to go with a woman, like in the instance of Deborah. Yeah, but I think, yeah, exactly. But I think in the larger scheme of, um, Luke asks, I think it's a, it's a, it's a larger story about how, um, the Holy Spirit, especially in Acts, is being poured out on all people, um, to pray and prophesy. And this is just kind of the beginning. This is kind of like an opening up of God's kingdom here on earth. Hmm. And I think what it's doing is it's, I think by especially doing some pairs, um, and in different scenarios, it's just showing how God's new reality is kind of breaking into the present and bringing out something that's unexpected. So an apocalypse, basically. If I've been reading Galatians too much. But yeah, yeah, so like an opening. So yeah. I, I, I think, and again, and we'll, we'll see more of this, I think, I think the text is trying to open up our eyes to see that there's this other reality happening all around us, and hmm. especially in ways that we didn't expect. And so Anna's just, she's someone that maybe would have been easily discounted. Um, she's a woman that's praying at the temple, yeah. you know, it, but, but is she, or is she doing something more significant in the context of God's larger scheme? Again, it, it's a question of characters that maybe we would discount are suddenly being moved to the front for a moment and then passing by if we don't acknowledge them. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is that what Anna's doing is praying or preaching, uh, about the, or, uh, concerning the, um, to all those who were looking for the Lutron. Of Jerusalem. Yes. And so it's it's a message of liberation. It's a message about praising and speaking about the child or the uh, or him, you know, Messiah. And she's basically saying, no, this is what's going to happen. And this is something that she already knows. It's been unveiled or open to her. And so it's a very powerful uh, image of a woman speaking about the redemption of Jerusalem proleptically. Like she's she's already she knows what's going on. This hasn't been revealed to anyone else. And of course, you know, I love the Luke and she never left the temple. You just kind of look at Luke a little side, like really never not to use the restroom or anything. But, you know, that's Luke. Something key about um, Anna, too, is that she was actually from the tribe of Asher. Um, and this is an exiled tribe. And so it's interesting that you have someone, this old widow who's going to the temple to pray um, repeatedly. And she's actually becomes the, the key witness. And um, I, I would say maybe even proclaimer, preacher um, of the salvation of her exiled tribe. I mean, hmm. this is, I mean, this is, her reality is one of um, historical disconnection, I guess, in hmm. exile. And she's basically there to say the, the, the 
beginning is 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 coming. Well, the liberation of Jerusalem is not just the liberation of Jerusalem. It's the liberation of her, of her tribe, of her people yeah. in exile, essentially. So you have that great exile motif of God returning to Jerusalem to save his people. Yeah. So again, there's another example um, of we can just, yeah, there's, yeah, old women can, I don't know, share fun stories about how um, Jesus touched their life. Or, you know, maybe she's um, proclaiming the liberation and return of her people, of a lost people and um, eventually, as we know, the world. Which it carries in at a certain substructure of the great motif in the Old Testament of God returning to save his people. So she's essentially, again, as, as Mary was doing, is recapitulating something that they should have known. So the Messiah is not just some random thing that God just suddenly plops down in the midst of humanity. God is being continually at work. And her reference to that is essentially a, 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 con a telling Israel to basically go back to your Bible. This is something God has been been doing. Yeah, and I think this is something the text is constantly doing. It's trying to oftentimes like push us towards thinking more in terms of something something new is here. Um don't don't be left um in your own little world. Like think yeah. think more broadly. So even like uh, the disciples being afraid and scared and you have women being coming in and preaching to them the of the resurrection and they don't they don't believe it. Nope. And again like uh some people will point out that a lot of times women get muted functionally in these texts, um, even in Luke-Acts, um, because they're maybe paired with men or whatever. Um, and the, the truth is, oftentimes when we see a man and a woman together, we'll think of the woman as kind of a just only a compliment to the man rather than them being compliments to one another. Hmm. Um, and I think that is, I think in a sense, we could say that the text does in enter into our own reality and our own reality is still one of women being muted, but it is trying to push us towards another reality of significance. Well, not only that, but if, if Bauckham's thesis about the eyewitnesses is true, then naming a woman's name means that if she were alive during the, the, the final writing of this, if someone had a question, they could go yes. to her and find her. Yes. So they are actually being presented as witnesses. Yep. And this is in a context where women were not considered valid witnesses. Correct. And again, that's another interesting, um, sometimes uh, said to be embarrassing detail of the text. Yeah. Um, where they're offering women up as witnesses to the resurrection, even though a woman's testimony is not admissible in court. Yep. So, yeah, something to think about. <laughs> something to think about. And you get an interesting, uh, highly interesting area of, of Luke's gospel, too. In Luke 8 and 24, uh, you have this uh, woman who uh, Mary called Magdalene, but also Joanna in uh, Luke 8, 8, verse 3. And Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa who should have chosen a better name, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources. And so the 12 were with him, as well as some women who have been cured of all of evil spirits and infirmities. And you just have this kind of little comment, jo Joanna, the wife of Herod, Stuart Chusa, who provided for them, or him, Jesus, according to other manuscripts, out of their resources. And so uh, Richard Balcom, in his book, uh, Gospel Women, which is just, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And Balcom notes on page 111 of his book, Gospel Women, uh, that it should be noted that if the sentence is read in such a way as to include the 12 as additional subjects in the activity ascribed to Jesus, then this must also be true of the women. Grammatically, there is no way of attributing preaching to the twelve, but not to the women. It is probably probably ascribed to neither. The twelve and the women are both said to be with him, that is, with Jesus. And kind of the impression given by the NRSV is that the women are something of an afterthought tied onto the main statement about the 12 is misleading. And Balcom offers a translational correction as, there were with him the 12 and some women who. And so the women are included with the 12, and we don't have any record of anyone preaching, like the 12 preaching, until after a certain event. And so these women being with him are not uh, tagalongs. They are people who've obviously been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. And the fact that Jesus doesn't name the 12, but he names them specifically, means that they're at a, at a place of, like we said, uh, of eyewitness honor and, and so forth. But they also provided for him out of their resources. This doesn't mean baking cookies or just giving funds. It means essentially engaging with Jesus with the totality of who they were. It means that uh, possibly if Joanna is the same person as Junia, as has been argued and I find convincing, uh, that uh, it's, it's very likely that uh, she gave out of her husband's resources as well. 
So if uh, given, you know, assuming they shared resources. Yeah, women oftentimes ran these households. They're yep. like they're managers, basically, especially if they're upper class women. Yep, exactly. And, and Balcom argues that Joanna was an upper class woman, which means she had probably quite a bit of wealth to her. And she was also Jewish, too, which means she would have had a sizable dowry as well. Yeah, and so, like, typically when you think of a head of the household, um, it's oftentimes a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, not that men are never um, thought of as heads of households, but um, it, it's maybe a little different from the, a, a very short period of time in our history where um, the man goes out and, like, earns the bread and comes back. Um, it, it, oftentimes, um, economics come from the household, yep. and... So you have women. Yeah, they have to generate revenue. You know, they have goats, they have fruit. They got, they got to, they got to make money. And so the woman has to be smart with money. You know, basically, or the wife does, or the kids do even too, which is interesting. Yeah, and there's not as much of a stark separation. Um, it's not a doctrine spheres. of separate. Yeah, exactly, separate spheres. Even if you, again, we're not saying that there's no um, form of patriarchy whatsoever, or that this is a perfect egalitarian utopia. We all know that's not true. No, it's not true. But let's just say it's different from how we imagine things today. Right. And so Joanna kind of disappears from that, or at least in name. You know, I'm I'm assuming she still kept on with Jesus after chapter 8. But she appears explicitly in in the the resurrection account of Luke in chapter 24 and verse 10. But I'll I'll read 1 through 10 to give us context. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, the women, came to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. This this, these are the women. This isn't the male disciples. The, the women are going to anoint the body, and the men are, I'm assuming, stuck somewhere sad and crying. <laughs> they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women, or they, were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, quote, Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told y'all, that's plural, you, all of you, uh, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day raised again. And then they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. They took all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Which, again, assuming Balcom's thesis, which has been pretty established, these women were witnesses beyond the eleven, beyond anything that we can imagine. And you have uh, the fact that Luke knows that these women were with Jesus to, from the beginning, which means they have intimate knowledge of who Jesus was and is. And they get it. They remembered his words, Jesus's words. And so it's not as if they, they went and were like, oh, now we've been commissioned. It's like, no, you've been a part of this this whole time. Therefore, they are not an afterthought. They are so integral to the, I mean, go back to chapter eight. How many chapters and events have happened since then? They remembered his words. And then they returned and they told all this, told, gave it to them, to the rest. And basically in chapter or verse 10, it's this great little, oh yeah, by the way, it was these people go and ask and talk to them about it if they're still alive, who told this to the disciples. And so it's just a great just way of ending the story. It's it's so wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, really this understanding of um, men and women, not just men and women, but other categories young and old, mm-hmm. um, slaves and free people, all suddenly being changed and transformed by this kingdom yeah. message. And I mean, I'm using general gospel language with the kingdom language, but yeah. um, it's this understanding that the spirit is poured out on all and a new age is dawned. And Nick, yeah. why don't you tell us a bit about just the um, use of Joel in uh, Acts? Oh yeah, yeah. The great, you know, the, the the great Pentecost text in Acts two, where it talks about even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Uh, in Joel two, you have uh, in it's God's response and promise to Israel uh, in verse eighteen. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. Uh, then you keep going, and the Lord's talking about the children of Zion and rejoicing. Uh, and being, it's about their vindication. He'll he'll repay you, and all these sorts of things. Then you get to verse twenty-eight. Then God's spirit, and then uh, verse twenty-eight says, "Then afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I'll pour out my spirit." So you have an outworking here of of even the slaves, and even the slaves being distinctive, male and female slaves, uh, showing that. Uh, even in Joel's context, the, there were differences. The, the slaves weren't lumped under the idea of bodies. They were actually male and female. 
and it's just a great little talk about uh, of, of vindication and giving of the spirit and uh, all people being included without distinction uh, in God's vindication of, of his people. And this applies, of course, to the mission in Acts, you know, Pentecost and then the sending and then on and on it goes. Yeah, and um, as I've been reading some of the stories of the martyrs, sometimes this um, is appealed to. I forget mm. if it's Bladina or Perpetua. I think it's Perpetua's mm. text, um, where Perpetua kind of stands as a, a model of the faith. Um, mm. She's a model even to her brothers um, in this whole thing. And she has put on Christ, and she's a warrior. Mm. Um, she's an athlete. And they're appealing to this. Interestingly, in the beginning, they're appealing to this idea that it's one spirit then and for them now. Hmm. It's the same spirit that binds everyone together and makes us all brothers and sisters. Very, It's not as though one is considered the, the father that everyone else must look up to or the mother that everyone else must look up to. I mean, you have some of that language going on too, honestly, but hmm. you also have this idea of all siblings. You kind of have this understanding yeah. that in the spirit, there's this equalization that occurs and something that we can all join in that's not separated by time and space. Yeah. And you also, too, just to make a note of it, the language of told or spoke is commonly used throughout Luke's gospel by Jesus and Jesus' lego or I spoke. And, you know, this is the same thing he told to you and the women essentially tell it to to the others. And so it's just really interesting. Yeah. And uh, like here's a, here's another one that we'll bring in that comes in a, a little bit later. And there's um, another kind of pairing that occurs. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, but so you have um, Lydia in Acts 16. Um, and so let me just like explain some of this situation. So this is another one of those stories that can be easily mit- missed. Or maybe Lydia is this nice woman that was showed great hospitality. Um, to to because women are great at hospitality. Yeah, women are great at hospitality. Maybe yeah. she gave him a warm dinner and I, I know I a love, hug I or love something. Warm dinners. Um, which you know maybe she did. You know, great good on her. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> which is actually great use of resources. Yeah, and hospitality is a bigger deal in those you know in that culture in that time as well. Um, Jesus was a dependent on hospitality as jo- <laughs> as Joanna shows. But anyway, the significance is I think in this is more of the narrative placement here. Um, hmm. There's a little switcheroo that occurs. Um, so. Paul's in Philippi, um, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia pleading for him to come um, and help them. Hmm. So let me let me go ahead and read some of this. This is in Acts 16, um, 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, and con- uh, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So pretty interesting. Yeah. So anyway, they go, they, they, they go just as they were called, um, on the pretext of a man pleading for help. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, a.k.a. a synagogue. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. That's interesting. So there's no, it's not a synagogue of men, but there's a bunch of women just kind of hanging out around there. A woman named Lydia from the city of um, the Tyra? Thyatira. Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God who listened, uh, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, this person that they, that's pleading for help um, isn't really a man, but a woman named Lydia. Um, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So, again, this is someone that's um, thought to be ahead of the household. Selling purple fabric. That requires a bit of wealth, it sounds like. Yeah. So, I mean, this is someone that's very industrial. This is um, someone who is running her household very well. Um, Probably very creative. Yeah, so again, like, we get a little glimpse. This isn't um, trying to... The text... Let me say this. The text isn't trying to promote, oh, women are the heads of the households and yeah. not men. Or this idea that, oh, when women and men can be heads of households. This is just a reality they're accepting. So later, yeah. the other pair with the jailer, um, he also... Um, it speaks of his household in verse 34. So... 
again, like to think in terms of the man is the head of the household as we do now is maybe not the world that they're coming from. Correct. But the thing I wanted to, again, draw your attention to is that this is, um, this is, there's a little switcheroo that's occurring here. Again, he goes there thinking he's going to um, meet a bunch of maybe men at the synagogue and instead he finds a group of women. It's not a man that's um, needing his help. It's a woman um, who takes, who is a head of the household and ends up um, not only showing hospitality, but bringing him um, into her, her household, converting her household, and basically becoming the linchpin of his ministry in that area. Hmm. So pretty significant, <clears throat> yeah. you know. And again, it's all about placement is, is the big thing that I want to bring out in this scenario. Yeah, Luke's not just randomly assembling crap and throwing it against the wall and go, there, there's my gospel. Everything in Luke and Acts and the gospels is very structured in terms of intent. Yeah, and I would try to say too, the, the wrong way to approach this isn't to be like, oh, quick, let's look and see if he ever encountered a man. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Like, yes, he probably, yes, he probably encountered a man, you know, and I mean, I'm Maybe sure the one. text even I mean, says as such. It, it, that's not the point. It's all about placement. Again, yep. expectations here goes this other way. I mean, we, uh, even in the terms of the story of Cornelius, we have like this kind of flipping of expectations where, yep. yes, it's the, this, um, these people that have the spirit of God in them that are going out to convert but at the same time, their own expectations are being flipped constantly. So yep. um, Peter, for instance, um, still has some hang-ups on Gentile inclusion, as we discussed, interestingly, in Galatians. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so he, he's not so sure about this. And he gets a vision. He gets the vision about um, basically being told to eat something that he considered unclean before. Hmm. And Cornelius is also being directed to him. And you have this kind of, you, you see this unfolding transformation of his expectations there in terms of um, Jew-Gentile as well. Yep. Um, so it's not just, again, the, the point is not um, for us to think in terms of, oh, we need to go out and constantly be thinking of how to convert others to our viewpoints. It's, no, you need to flip your own expectations and your own understanding of how God's economy, um, I would say his own household economy, um, works. And that's a, a major theme in Luke's gospel is reversalism. And so it's kind of flip. Luke is very good at flipping the script, so to speak. Yes. And so when we get into our, our comments on the theology of Luke, uh, that, that'll be a bigger point I want to make. So. Yeah. And again, like, I, I think the question we should be constantly asking is, how is God changing our views of the world and what he can and cannot do Um or what we think are his limitations on us. Or what value we place on the people in God's story. And, and exactly. God and, and God's, you know, inspired and errant holy word. These women mean something. They're not tagalongs and they're not to be subsumed under 1 Timothy 2. These women are free to speak because God has written them in his holy word. And they're there to instruct us too. And that's something I'll obviously make another point on because I'm anticipating it's a trailer. Yeah. I have a big point I want to make, but I'll wait because I'm awesome. Okay, so the last one we're going to go through for our purposes today, because this is endless, um, I really encourage you just to look look through, look at, um, from, and think, just be open. And it's not just about gender. Um, who knows what you're going to find? There's there's tons of things, and the Spirit talks, speaks to us in new ways yep. all the time. Um, but we're going to look at Priscilla and Aquila now. Mm. In that order. Um, <laughs> so, let's see. Acts 18, tw starting at 26. Actually, no. I'll go up to 24. Okay. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. So, pretty good um, requ uh, requisite here. Like, Sounds like a bit of a badass. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Nick didn't say that on on this podcast. Just we'll, we'll pretend like we bleeped it out. Yeah, we'll pretend. Um, but yeah, so he basically big, big evangelist. He's not being um, this Apollos guy is not being portrayed as someone that's immature or, you know. He's not being portrayed like me. Yes. Ha ha ha. Um, this isn't some like person that's kind of an almost Christian per se. Like, and again, this is a more fluid time in I would say salvation history as well, where there's a lot of overlap between and news being spread and anyway. Um, this man has been instructed. Let's see. This man has been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. 
So interesting. Yeah. So he's got, he's got the, um, whole part about John the Baptist and everything that John preached was, which is essentially, I would say the gospel. He just doesn't know about everything that's been, um, realized yet. Yeah. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So this is being portrayed as, um, he is very mighty in the scriptures. He knows what he knows well, but he doesn't know everything. Um, he still needs some instruction. Hmm. So why, why is this at all significant? And again, it's easy for us to um, gloss over or to kind of reconceptualize into paradigms we're used to. We're used to thinking, okay, so when we hear Priscilla and Quilla, we're thinking, okay, uh, maybe husband and wife team. Uh, maybe yeah, only maybe we expect that the husband um, did the talking and uh, maybe Priscilla was just kind of there. Nodding, like, uh-huh. Nodding. Uh-huh. Or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they were both helpful. Or maybe we think in terms of Apollos is a non-Christian that just needs to be set straight on the ways of God and then he converts. And so maybe Priscilla can take a more active role because we've decided that this is the box. Yeah. Um, and women can can certainly minister to people that are not Christians and teach them doctrine, but they can't perhaps teach people. Anyway, this isn't quite the scenario painted here. Um, again, we have a lot of, I would say Luke acts as a lot of, uh, maybe time of overlap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the significance here is Priscilla is named first. This is atypical for um, ancient um, commentaries. It's not untypical in the New Testament. You know, women are, you know, wives are mentioned first in, say, Ephesians five twenty one and onward. Yeah, so we're noticing a pattern here where the values, perhaps, of the New Testament are a bit different from the surrounding culture, where a lot of us think, again, prominent man, um, this, this kind of weight of Priscilla's name first would not hit us in the same way. Right. Um, this is very unusual that she's named first, and usually the more prominent or more esteemed or um, person that has a lot more authority would be named first. Yeah. And the fact that she's named first might actually suggest that she's the more, perhaps the more active of the two. Um, Maybe the more learned, you know, or more educated. I mean, yeah, and, so and on this, and so forth. It's not just here. She's, I believe she's named first another. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he's named first, sometimes she's named first. Yeah. So it's not as if, oh yeah, he's he's a dummy either. Yeah, and what what sticks out again is the fact that she is named first. Yep. Really is what we're trying to get across. No here. one would bat an eye if he were named first. But we all bat an eye because she's named first. And so it's it's both the reciprocality of both being named first, but the fact that she's named first means a lot. Yeah, it means that um, she's portrayed as something more than just a tag along. Yep. She's more than just a compliment to him. Um, she's an active agent and explaining it to him, meaning she has a value to contribute that her husband maybe doesn't. And maybe he has something to contribute that she doesn't. Yeah. So. So, yeah. So, again, like, again, this is a little bit more murky um, waters um, to a lot of people because these are narratives and we're looking at some of the odd placement of things. And, and, and a lot of people are thinking, too, what did she do? Okay, women can do that and only that. And that's where I'm like, no, a narrative is not meant to fit into your preconceived notions of what women can or can't do. And there's, frankly, a lot more... There's always interpretive work. Always. Yep. Like, And we've discussed before um, the danger of taking a proposition and importing it to another place and making it sound... Making it into something completely different, like right. what the um, leaders did with the Sabbath. So instead of um, taking instead of taking it as Jesus did in the context of the Exodus and the freedom from slavery, which would imply that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, mm -hmm. they took it and decided this was a way to enforce um, this kind of strict, um, I guess, obedience that flipped the scenario where suddenly um, all the human beings were captive to the Sabbath, and it yeah. it was a way for them to condemn Jesus and his followers. So again. Mm -hmm. Context is everything. These are, everything is highly interpretive. And part, I think part of the struggle of faith is having to think critically and think um, more expansively about what the text is trying to communicate. We're, I think, being encouraged to enter into this flow of narrative and to think of, um, I guess, even ourselves in this, in these situations. Yeah. And a big question too is, you know, a lot of people say, uh, Jesus only had male disciples. And instead of going to Scripture to let Scripture dictate the questions we ask, 
we go, uh, I don't see a woman named as an apostle in here. Uh, therefore, X. And my response is... Although, even if we can show, like, yes, there is an apostle in... A female apostle named Romans. We'll get into that maybe a little later. And yeah. Possibly the same Joanna. Yeah. Kenya. But... But it's, yeah. this, it's, this, it's this problem with evangelicalism or some facets of evangelicalism where I know what one verse says and therefore everything cannot say what it seems to say and I have no interpretive imagination in reading a narrative. You do not, they would, if they didn't, for example, if they didn't have 1 Timothy 2 at the back of their mind, they would not read Luke Acts the way they do. They would look at it and go, oh, all these things and this whole interpretive framework and similes and ideas and play on, you know, your imagination becomes open, but you restrict it when you basically cauterize a certain verse and what you think a certain verse means, not what it actually says, but what we think it means. And then everything gets subsumed. And I'm like, that's how cultists do exegesis. I mean, they take one verse that says Jesus isn't God or G or I'm Jesus is human and go, oh, John 1 can't say what John 1 says because it doesn't fit my framework. And the truth is we all are guilty of that. We're yep. not just saying we're, again, we're egalitarians and we're trying to present to you an egalitarian um, reading of various passages. But the thing is we all, every last single one of us um, does this to some extent. Yep. And again, even in conversation, one of the big things... Um, conversations with text with god with people is to sometimes just sit and listen yeah and to not be so much thinking of how you can impress your own values or your own views on others but what's actually being said and yeah. considering like within you in prayer like the merits of it mm -hmm. and being willing to dialogue with the tradition and with and, and being ultimately what i guess i'm getting at is being submissive to the revealed word of god the, the fact that God canonized the words of women in the Magnificat is a testament to the fact that God speaks equally through women as well as men, and God's truth is revealed regardless of gender or status. And that is something I think plays a, a definite precedent in how we what we talk about when we talk about women in Luke. And that was the big lesson even of Peter and Cornelius. Yep. Um, God doesn't show partiality. Yep. Um, and that seems to be a running theme in the New Testament. Yep. Um, we may be ones that show partiality, and some of it is, and it'll take different forms depending on um, what cultural values we bring, um, but God doesn't. And I, I'd like to add, too, uh, maybe an application um, outside of directly gender, but maybe relating to it. Um, we're every day just engaging with opponents or people that maybe sometimes get us ever so angry um, yes. for various reasons. And the thing is, God is not a God of partiality. He loves that other person just as much as he loves you. And even if they're being... A butt. <laughs> yes, there we go, better. Um, that doesn't mean that we have to return in kind. And that's a lesson that I'm learning. Um, and it's, it's always hard to navigate these complex webs of <laughs> intrigue and um, sometimes just people ranting like they think they know who you are and they're gonna tell you all about it and you know it's on us to to think of them the try to think of them the way god sees them yeah it's a good word preach so um with that said let's cover a little more overtly the theology of luke acts especially in relation to women uh the big thing and i'm gonna go back to the magnificat is the idea of, as we've said, or I said, uh, the theme of eschatological reversalism, feeling the hungry with good things, saying the rich away empty. But also, too, a, a broader theme, and this is to bring Paul and Galatians a bit into it. Paul talks in Galatians all about the promise. The promise is made to Abraham and to the offspring, and the offspring, of course, is Christ. You find a similar kind of thematic theme in the Magnificat of uh, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abram and to his descendants forever. And so the theme being which you see kind of a thematic link between Galatians and Luke here. Um, and the, the idea being that women are included in these descendants and in these ancestors as according to the promise made to Abraham. And so... It's not as if these gifts or the promise are exclusive to a single category of gender. It's to our ancestors. It's to his descendants. Anyone who is in Abraham uh, is given the gift of the promise. And, and, and that's the purpose of the tongues in Acts, yep. too. This is, this is people hearing off the street, um, wait, were they speaking my language? Yep. Um, so, again, this is, again, another flip in expectations. You know, again, even with, um, we had earlier... Um, 
the whole theme of the the bringing together of the tribes of Israel. But it, again, it's it's not just about Israel. It's about yeah. everyone. And this goes across even just ethnic divides. It goes into gender. It goes into age. It goes mm-hmm. into like placement within a household. I, I, I think all of these things in this world, too, are um, related in some way to one's position in the community. Yeah. And the fact that a woman gives us the thesis statement of Luke is not to be underestimated. God could have given this to an angel, could have given it to any of the dudes mentioned already, but he gave it to Mary. Like that's a gift to us as a church to hear the authoritative word of women given as the voice piece of God. I mean, that means something. I mean, would you not let Mary preach the Magnificat in your church? Like if she's given clearly the gift of, of this, it's like, what, why would you say no to that? And in, in some of these texts, um, the women are there. God is using these women in powerful ways, and they are not always listened to. Yeah. Um, hey, guys, it's the resurrection. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact that, you know, he has to, you know, then he says to them, you are witnesses of these things. And see, I'm sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So, of course, Luke is anticipating Pentecost in ch- chapter 24 of Luke. And then he blessed them. And he's blessing them. He's giving them these gifts of, of the Spirit. And it, the thing is, I think with Luke's theology, these are not gifts for you. These are gifts for other people. Yeah. And so it's, it may make you feel good. It's not just about you, in other words. Yeah. And so <laughs> Ma- Mary's Magnificat is a gift not for Mary, but it's a gift for us. And the fact that it's codified in sacred scripture means this is a gift to me. This is a gift to you. And so to diminish it uh, and to play off as kind of, yeah, she could have said that in one time and space doesn't do justice to the power of God's holy word. If we take scripture seriously, we have to take Mary's Magnificat seriously. We have to take the blessing that Jesus gives to those who are with him. And the fact that he blesses them with being the first people to announce or tell his resurrection. It's the same word that Jesus used when he told people. Yeah. And I think it's going back to trying to adopt the eyes that God has for others. And mm. I, I like to even think of it in terms of uh, C.S. Lewis's uh Line the Witch in the Wardrobe series for children. Mm. You never know, like, if it's an ordinary object or if you're going to step through and it's going to be a whole nother world. In a sense, we have to view other people in that light. Um, mm. what Kind and unkind. Um, bizarre and not bizarre. Um, and just think in terms of, well, what can what can we learn? What can God teach me through them today? Yeah, and, and the something that Luke has written in chapter 24 and 25 Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, the disciples, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Which prophets is he talking about? Is he talking about the women at the tube, or is he talking about the Old Testament prophets? Mm -hmm. My guess is it's both. I mean, this has been foretold by the prophets, but it's not as if the women prophets who told them that Jesus is raised are excluded from this. They declared this. And again, prophecy is more than just telling the future again. um, This... And I think the Puritans even had a sense of, I think they even used the term prophesy for some of their preaching. Um, This is, um, uh, we we emphasize uh, foretelling the future, but this is forth-telling too. This is speaking with conviction. This is speaking to the hearts and minds. This is speaking to the hearts and minds. I mean, how much more authoritative can you get when thus says the Lord? It's like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. You know, God gives you a word, and it's if it's coordinate with Holy Scripture, then you best shut up and listen. Yeah, and look at some of these rules of prophecy. L- look at like how prophets are actually functioning in the Bible. Like mm-hmm. I know when it comes to women, like people like to say, make these strange distinctions and say, well, it's more of a, like a passive thing where maybe God tells them say this, and then they say this. Where maybe the men among us can be more inventive and have to think critically and. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking nonsense. And yeah. again, these are things that we've heard all you know by all sorts of people. And some people are more nuanced, some aren't. All I'm saying is just look at the text, look at what's actually occurring, and make some decisions. <laughs> yeah. And be open to things that you haven't considered before. Yeah. So what are we talking about next time? Well, since we will be going to this amazing CBE conference um, this upcoming weekend, um, we'll probably be telling you guys about that. There's a really good lineup. I'm personally looking forward to um, hearing Joy Moore talk about um, how, how mutuality matters and especially mediating gender, the cult of inequality and identity on the screen. Ooh, snap. Yeah, so 
Oh, snap is right. Um, and especially Rebecca Kotz is going to be giving a great talk um, on uh, human trafficking and violence. Um, just uh, something I appreciate about the CBE conferences is they do a good mix of getting into the word, but also looking at things that are actually happening in the world and having the best in the world speak on these variety of topics. Um, so I, I, if you can make it um, to Orlando, Florida this next weekend, we would love to see you there. We'd love to meet you. Um, exchange some fun stories. <laughs> Get a high five and split a beer. Well, not split a beer. I want, I want my own. But yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. So yeah, look forward to seeing you or hearing from you from Orlando, Florida. And we'll see. And don't listen to the lies of Mike. No, don't listen to the lies of Mike. All right, bye. Okay.